0: Support for this episode comes from SAS. SAS is going all in on AI to help the world get more done with data. See for yourself in Las Vegas, April 16th to 19th at SAS Innovate, the data and AI experience for everyone and every role, from top executives to data scientists, engineers, analysts, and more. I'll be there leading a panel discussion about the importance of responsible AI. It's just one of the many sessions that will highlight the massive potential of AI. Visit innovate.sas.com and use the code CARA to save $100 on registration. I'll see you there. Support for this episode comes from The Current. The Current Podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. And in this presidential election season, The Current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at The Current. Current.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, this is Pivot from New York magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher.
1: And I'm Scott Galloway.
0: All right, Scott, what is with your costume? I don't know what to say. Come on. I was I, I, I was triggered. I was triggered. I literally opened threads up, and there you were. And then there you were with Bill Maher. It was very disturbing in the entire, and everyone was like, find out what happened, Kara. So what happened, Scott Galloway?
1: Well, the costume was genius. I went as Deadpool. Yeah. And I mean, Halloween's by far my favorite holiday. And because I'm friends with Kara Swisher, I get invited to fancy, cool parties. Okay. And so-
0: Which I did not get invited to, but please go on.
1: So I went to this great party in LA after Bill Maher. And then Bill Maher showed up, which meant I must be at the right place. Um,
0: okay. Or maybe not, but go ahead. Yeah,
1: it was great. I had a ton of fun.
0: So wh- wh- you dressed up as Deadpool. Wh- why? And where did you get this costume? And how long did you wear it?
1: Well, I'm still wearing it. I'm taking it off. I'm like a four-year-old that just loves this princess, little princess outfit.
0: Yes, because um, Claire's been in her outfit quite a bit. Uh, but go ahead. I,
1: no, the reality is I can't take any credit for it. I have the most like wonderful, thoughtful assistant who literally said, you're going to be in L.A. for Halloween weekend. We need to get you a great... Outfit, and she did, and she had a makeup artist come over and make me. I went as Deadpool after the fire, so I had a makeup artist right. come over. And uh, the very sad part was, I said, "I need to look like someone who's been totally mutilated." And she looked at me and she's like, "No problem, <laughs> it's going to be easy." <laughs> 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 but she put all these scars on my face, and it was a time. God, it was great. I had a ton of fun. I'm really. You blessed. had a good
0: time. Yeah. Uh, you had a good time. Was it very Hollywoody? Was it like all
1: yeah? The there were. People? There were I think I'm their kind of their diversity invite, like, oh, yeah, I invite the professor. that's kind of funny, yeah, um yeah, but it was a bunch of fabulous yeah. good looking young people, and I'm um, none of those things, but yeah, I had a great time, great time. What'd you do,
0: Amanda and I took Clara to see the Taylor Swift show uh concert movie, which was fantastic. She dressed up um and she was uh, she had a great time. She watched the whole thing through. she's only four, but she managed to do it a lot of little girls dancing in the aisles. Um, and it was a great film, I have to say another flawless effort by Tesha, totally classy um everything that you might indulge yourself doing, like behind the scenes, she didn't do it was just the concert, beautifully photographed, uh beautiful even even like. At the end, the end credits were beautiful. Like, it was really well done. And then uh, I I, I decorated Halloween all weekend. I I did an excellent job as dad, uh, dad swisher, um, decorating the house.
1: Can we make a deal? If I stop with the dick jokes, will you never bring up Taylor Swift again?
0: No, no, no. no. Because you're not going to stop with the dick jokes.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Big Ed and the twins are still with us.
0: All right. But let me just say, dick jokes do not, you know, are not the engine of our economy and keeping us out of recession. But let's not go into that. And and she's not a billion. She's a billionaire now, by the way. Anyway, Scott, we were all over the airwaves this weekend. I was on The Simpsons. They did a mockumentary episode about Elizabeth Holmes type character. Let's listen to a clip. So Lifeboat was just following the tech industry playbook. Fake it till you make it. Or as I call it, IPO until you IPO. But the employees were already dreaming of cashing out. And you were on Real Time with Bill Maher. Uh, let's hear a clip where you're talking about the new speaker of the House.
1: We are normalizing <laughs> climate change. We are normalizing anti-Semitism. And we are normalizing a kicking out of the legs of the stool of democracy. Central to our democracy, regardless of what you think about our country, it's the best of its kind so far, hands down. Democracy, the pillars of that are one, the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. And this guy was an architect of trying to arrest that and a society that is secular. And when a guy gets this nod and says that God ordained it, I'm like, well, boss, whose God is that? Yeah. Because this is the whole point here is that we separate church and state, that we believe in the peaceful transfer of power. How did your show go? Um, thanks for asking. It, it, it was the least enjoyable, um, Uh, Bill Maher experience I've had, not through any fault of their own, Um, but I know them well enough now that I can kind of feel, not their stress, but I know that the, the two producers are these like Friday Night Lights people. They're like the people you'd want as parents. They're these impossibly good looking and cool parent parental people. And I've become fond of them for lack of a better term. And they had Governor Cuomo on, and it was just very... I don't want to say tense, but they realized they had a very difficult, near impossible job of threading the needle, of trying to be not being seen as an apologist for him, but at the same time afford him some respect. And the panel, the or sorry, the interview was with him and his top aide, and the it went 17 minutes instead of 12, so we had very little time on the panel. So me and Jessica Torlov, who is the other panelist, who, by the way, is wonderful, and she did a great job. We didn't get much time to talk. And then the panel afterwards, the overtime, was Jessica had to leave because Fox won't let her do anything that has to do with CNN, and they put overtime on CNN. So it was me, the governor, and his assistant. And so the topics were genocide and people dying in nursing homes. And at one point, point I'm literally like, I'm a marketing professor. Can't we talk about (laughs) TikTok or something? And I wanted to be airlifted out of there. It just got so serious so fast. I was out over my skis so much. I did not know really how to, it just, it, I'm there with the governor and his aide on Bill Maher and I remember thinking like, you know, Calgon take me away, <laughs> how did I get here? Anyways, I always loved going on the show, I'm always flattered. I also, and I've told you this, I get very nervous on that show. I don't get nervous yeah, anywhere do. else. you do. Why is there.
0: that? You've done really well.
1: I appreciate you saying that. You haven't seen this show.
0: But, Scott, the most important thing that we're doing, first of all, let's begin, because it is on the news, is we're going to the White House.
1: Good. More about us.
0: <laughs> I know. More about us. But we're going to the White House. We're going for lunch. We're going for a tour. But we're going to the White House because President Biden is launching a new approach on AI on Monday, and we're going to be there to hear about it. We may speak to some people on Thursday about it who are in the middle of it. The executive order will create standards and rules. Around AI, uh, taking on algorithmic housing discrimination, cybersecurity, data privacy. It required developers to follow new safety guidelines and create government standards to discern AI generated content. Um, so it's going to be interesting. My, my issue is always is why hasn't Congress acted here? Why is this an executive order? But we'll listen to see what they have. Some of the stuff is leaked out of what's in it. Um, uh, you have been deemed an AI influencer by the White House, Scott. Uh, are you going to behave? <laughs>
1: I'm being very serious. i'm I'm very excited and a little bit nervous about it, so i'm I'm excited to be here with you. I feel as if I have sort of an insider. I've never really felt I've never I haven't spent that much time in d c. I' definitely feel like a fish out of water here. Um, but I'm just super excited. It took me you know fifty eight years to get to the White House. so here I am. Or here we are, I should say. Yeah.
0: So so from the AI rules, if you do you know anything about them, you're just gonna show up and look pretty and I'm gonna do all the talking. I'm, is that
1: what's I'm happening? literally just gonna just gonna listen and try and keep an open mind and be very supportive of what I look, you can't you can't sort of heckle from the cheap seats about an absence of regulation and then they try to get out in front of this, which I think is the right thing to do. And I'm I'm gonna try and be very supportive and should they want feedback on it. Uh, I think this is a big issue and I respect the fact that rather than trying to let it grind through the gears of Congress or not, they're trying to get out in front of it. it. I think it speaks well to the administration that they're at least thinking about it. My guess is they won't get it right, they won't get it perfect, but for God's sakes, at least they're starting, right?
0: Is there one area you think they really need to focus in on from your perspective? They're doing a lot of things here. This is sort of a broad thing of how agencies should act and all kinds of, you know, they're, they're focused on algorithmic discrimination. Obviously, it's important to someone like me, but I think the, the, also standards about where AI generated content come from. is going to affect every industry, especially media, which we're in. Um so these are the kind of things they have to be thinking about.
1: I'm worried they're going to spend and this is going to come off as get off my lawn privilege white guy, but I'm worried they're going to spend a ton of time you know trying to figure out the biases the, the problem is this thing is going to have a bias because hi, historically we are a biased nation. So every piece of content that's fed into this thing will reflect our biases to date. And I think that's an issue, but I think there are much more important fish to fry here specifically ensuring that foreign bad actors don't use AI-tested misinformation to pervert the elections, to further divide us. I think think the biggest threat to America right now is not Putin. It's not jihadists. It's the fact that we're being divided internally by these platforms. And then when you have an amoral management team of platforms willing to cash anyone's check and someone can AI-test information to try and get... Trump elected, such that they overnight win the war in Ukraine. I think this is a defense issue. I think it's a propaganda issue. So yeah, let's make sure that it uses the right pronouns. But I don't think that's our biggest problem.
0: Okay, all right. I want you to say that's President Biden. He's going to be there. You know.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I don't. Do we get to take a picture with him or anything like that? I don't even know. How does this all I work?
0: I'll, we'll see if we can get to a picture.
1: <laughs> that's literally how I'm. Such be, like, here's, I'm here's such a tourist. Co- I'm such a tourist. <laughs> do we get a picture with him? <laughs> Mom.
0: Two things before we go um, is, one, is you, you are not to wear that outfit. You are not to wear that outfit to the White House. One. No,
1: I've, I've been hauling a suit. I've been hauling a Deadpool costume and swords and a suit around America. You're
0: not wearing any of that to the White House. Number two, do not touch anything when we're there. Do I want you to keep anything. your hands. Why would I not touch Don't like, anything? touch vases. Don't touch buttons. Don't set off a nuclear situation. I'm very uh, situation. well behaved. I don't go don't wander around like you're in like national treasure. I just want you to just stick with me, okay? And okay. we'll be good. We got um, it. All right? You I'm, should
1: behave. I'm both a little bit insulted All and right. flattered that you're worried about me. Yeah,
0: I thought you might wear the outfit.
1: You know, I have been to this stuff before. Okay.
0: All right, <laughs> but it's this, the White but House. I have, this is the White House.
1: You know, I've been to like Bar Mitzvahs and okay. stuff. This is the White House. You'll <laughs> see.
0: You're going to be awed. I have to say, I'm awed every time I go into the White House. It, you still do. It, as cynical as I can be, I'm always awed by the White House. We're right near it, so we're going to walk over we're gonna wander over. Uh, uh, and, and go over there. I'm going to give you a little historical uh, facts as we walk over. You're going to be irritated. It's going to be great. Anyway, um, before we move on, a sad news about actor Matthew Perry who died this weekend at age 54. He's best remembered playing Chandler Bing, of course, on Friends, but had a number of other roles in TV shows and movies. But really, he was Chandler Bing. He was very candid about his issues with substance abuse and addiction over the years. His, that book was something else. I, I know a lot of people like to drag on Friends, but I liked it. I watched so many episodes. He was obviously a very gift comic actor, uh, seemed to be a very kind person suffering from, you know, people kept calling him sad clown as this weekend, which was sad. And he, of course, died in a very sad way. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but he was very candid about an inability to beat his substance abuse issues.
1: Um, Look, I don't, I think one of the ways you grow and mature as a person, and maybe unless you're more evolved, when I was younger, my attitude towards addiction was quite frankly a little bit like, get your shit together as if it was something that was more controllable. And then as you get older and if you get exposed to people, I remember, Kara, because I was someone's boss, being invited to an intervention of a kid who had uh, an addiction to heroin. And quite frankly, it was a high-functioning person. I had no idea. And they all went around the room and taught, you know, told him how much they loved the kid and how how fucked up his life was. And I'm not exaggerating. He said, I love you all. I get it. I choose heroin. I mean, it was just so like, oh my God! Did he just say that? And you just see the kind of grip um, that these, you know, that substance abuse, you know, substance abuse has on people, and how they know it's ruining. Them. I mean, I love. I saw this meme that said, you know, addiction is choosing one thing over everything else, and recovery is an attempt to choose everything else over one thing. And some people just don't have that choice. Their brain makes that connection, and it just takes over their life. And it's sad because you get the sense. I mean, I I didn't know the guy. Maybe you knew him. He just seemed like a nice guy. He was really struggling. And so you feel for him and his family.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to watch all the reaction because every single person, there's not one Negative thing. There was one comic who was obnoxious about how he died, but it seems like every single person has written a lovely thing about him. You know, like that lovely guy struggling. I thought that book was, I thought it was quite a, a gripping book. I thought it was very honest. You know, he'd spent, I think he said he spent $7 million trying to get clean and just couldn't. Now he was apparently in a clean period, but, um, but he was very honest about his struggles of, of, of depression and, uh, mixed with opiate addiction in his case, and he, you know, he, he had one thing where he said you could tell what where where I was in my addictions by what I looked like on the show. If I was heavy, it was alcohol. If I was skinny, uh, it was pills. And if it was skinny with a goatee, it was lots of pills. I mean, which is funny, but um, but not really. You know, it just was. He was uh, he. You know, I just thought he was a really he did a good really good job at what he did, and it's sad that he. Um, it is sad. It is sad. Anyway, Matthew Perry. Godspeed, Matthew Perry. You have yeah. a lot of enjoyment to a lot of people, um, and really, uh, again, just a just a very love seems like a lovely person who had a very troubled life. Um, anyway, let's get to our first big story. The FCC is ready to restore net neutrality. At a recent meeting, the commission voted to move forward on a proposal to reclassify broadband as a telecommunications service, making it subject to oversight and regulation. The FCC chair says the move will, quote, protect internet openness and consumers defend national security and advance public safety. The final vote on the proposal is likely to happen next year. Federal authority over broadband would likely include regulation of blocking, throttling, and paid traffic prioritization. Reminder, the FCC under President Obama moved to reclassify broadband. And in 2015, the FCC under President Trump reversed that. In 2017, this has been a real volleyball match: net neutrality, and not an interesting one. Thoughts? Any at all?
1: You know, Kara, you're going to forget more about this than I'm ever going to know. I just don't really. I understand the basics here, but I don't. I don't get the nuance. What are your thoughts here?
0: Well, I, you know, I I think of the the internet as a utility, uh, but it's also look. These are for profit. Um, I don't know why we don't consider it a utility. I never understood that. And if you call the net neutrality, it's a confusing debate, right? And in a lot of ways, when I hear from say the cable companies or the internet service providers or various things, they have a point. You know, they built these things. They've made them possible. And at the same time, prices are crazy all over the place. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it doesn't make any, any sense. And so I think this has been sort of a, Capitalism versus commonism, I guess, or the with commons, um, argument for a very, very long time. Um, I, I do not see why it is not regulated like telecommunications. I've never understood that. Um, and that it's, it, it's one of these things like with telephones, but even more so that internet openness and consumer access to this seems like both not just national security and public safety, but a priority for education for, I just have never understood how it became so capitalistic and not thinking of it as a commons. That's my, I've always thought there should be a federal, uh, you know, and, and that that companies get to decide the blocking, the throttling, you know, which as you recall from many years ago, that was the um you know, that you could pay to be faster at these things. And I, I think you should be able just like, kind of reminds me of medicine or access to medical things. Like this is kind of a, I don't know, it seems like table stakes for a society to have, you know, w- the U.S. has always been way behind in this when you look at all the statistics of, and the highest in price and the least connectivity. And it seems, I just can't believe we're still arguing for this decades later, but-
1: and but but to be fair I do remember when they did away with kind of net neutrality or the FCC uh, did away with it under the Trump administration and there was a lot of is going to fall and poor people won't be able to get broadband and they'll start throttling different things to price gouge and I haven't at least as a consumer seen that where I do think it makes sense, or I think the better argument around regulation mm-hmm. is that when this very important channel is controlled by for-profit entities, similar to social media, they're not going to have the same incentives around defense issues, mm-hmm. around whether or not you know they'll just go to the lowest cost bidder. And if it's Huawei and there's a defense risk there, you know f- Meta or Netflix, wherever it is, quite frankly, doesn't care. And I, I do think there are defense issues around operating the backbone that kind of delivers oxygen and all information to Americans. And I like the idea of a bureaucrat or a regulator saying, okay, this could pose a defense risk when you're inserting Chinese tech hardware technology, um, or, you know, could someone potentially just shut this thing off? So I I look at it more through a defense lens because I don't see the same kind of monopoly abuse here. Maybe it's because I'm Privileged, and I don't look at my bill.
0: Well, I think I don't know. This is there's an interesting Washington Post um, editorial which I kind of liked, and he they noted that they said dismayed advocates warned the world that without protection, place the internet would break. You'll never guess what happened next. Nothing, or at least almost nothing. The internet did not break. The internet service providers, for the most part, did not block and they did not throttle. All the same, on today's FCC under. Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel has moved to reclassify broadband. The interesting part is that her strongest argument doesn't have much to do with net neutrality, but with some other benefits the country could see from having a federal watchdog keeping an eye on the broadband business. That's really um, what I think is important. And uh, uh, this is the last part. Asserting federal authority over broadband would empower regulation of any throttling, blah, blah, blah. Um, it could help ensure the safety and security of U.S. networks. The FCC has on national security grounds removed authorization for companies affiliated with adversary states, such as China's Huawei, from participating U.S. telecommunications market. The agency can do that for phone carriers, but it can't do it for broadband because it isn't allowed to. Same thing with public safety. I think those are more of the arguments. I think it sort of got sucked up into this somehow Comcast was going to fuck us, right? That was basically one side. And the other was, we're not going to fuck you. We're making it better kind of thing. Um, and I just think, uh, it, you know, the fact that the fact is, again, getting back to our White House visit and everything else is so much of this stuff has not been updated by Congress, you know, because it's, it, it's it, the telecommunications act, um, is, 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 Archaic, like, as, as the Washington Post calls it. And I think that's the, the, you need some sort of internet governance. And so what is that? And they resist governance, but they haven't written any new laws for the new era, right? Um, and, and there's some very serious things, including around public safety, including around national security and cyber attacks, um, that, 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 that other telecoms are policed in some fashion. And so that's that to me is the best. I mean, the word net neutrality, your eyes glaze over, right? Like you just, your eyes glaze over and you can't understand it. And when it becomes a capitalist argument, it becomes a partisan fight. And that's, that's why it degenerates. But when you think of it as a, a, an important common utility that we all need for both public safety, national security, and education, it's a much better argument to make for having some government oversight of this. So that's my argument. Thank you. I'd like to be FCC chairman. We'll see where it goes from here. Um, I We should have uh, the chairperson on from, from there talking about what's going on so she can explain it to us. And then someone who doesn't agree with it still, but not the same argument we should start to think about in a new, fresh way. All right, Scott, let's go on a quick break. When we come back. Why the EV gamble isn't paying off.
1: Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and Eagle can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
2: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin?
0: Scott, we're back with auto execs pumping the brakes on the electric vehicle expansion due to slowing sales and growing inventory. GM and Honda announced last week they're ditching a partnership aimed at developing lower-priced EVs, with uh, GM also abandoning a target to build 400,000 EVs by mid-2024. Ford just announced on a third-quarter earnings call that it's postponing $12 billion in planned spending on EV production um, Toyota's chairman was recently asked about this downtrend in U.S. EV demand and said people are finally seeing reality, although they were deep into it. Um, what do you make of this slowdown? He, the, Toyota's been more investing in hybrids, where people are just—they're still in hybrids. They like electric, but they don't want to go fully electric. How do you look at this?
1: So I think that everybody was so intoxicated and getting so shamed about not being Tesla. You know, when Tesla became worth more than the entire auto market— correctly every board said well what's the difference between us and tesla and they thought well it's ev production and you can understand that but it was a lot more than that um musk had done a great job leveraging the media got people very excited about this future dominated what was supposed to be the next thing and that conference i was at with you um there was someone from the oil and gas industry and he said that effectively if you asked auto companies to just figure out a way to um, buy carbon credits or invest in reforestation and go carbon neutral with all the cars they're producing. That that would be a more economical way of of helping the environment and giving people transportation needs because EVs are still very expensive and they have their own environmental issues. Now, whether you believe that or not, it's clear that the automobile manufacturers. I mean, you could argue strategically that they were. They, they, this was a bit of a dumb move. You got to skate to where the hawk. Ho- puck is, but you also got to realize we're really good at building internal combustion engines. And we're really good at building cars with, with uh, consumers who still, for the most part, when they look at the value trade-off like internal combustion engines. I mean, they're voting with their pocketbook. It's, it's still kind of the dominant technology platform out there. But these companies are now thinking, okay, did we, get, did we make investments that were just too aggressive and they're scaling back a bit? What are your thoughts, Kara? Here's the
0: here's the thing. I do think people will eventually. I think everyone who wants an EV has bought an EV, right? Or they're in it. I like my. I love mine. Um, I think it's great. And those who can afford to put electric um, chargers in their homes. Um, they're coming down in price, obviously, or and it's still not built out, so people are still nervous about it. And then the price point um, is not, I think at one point when I interviewed Bill Gates, he called it the green premium has to come down to equality, right? That it's the, it's, it's just as cheap kind of thing. And they tend to make choices if that's the case, um, economic choices. What's interesting is Toyota, Who's this, there's this new to, this Toyota CEO that's sort of lecturing everyone, but the company itself had an in-house startup that was supposed to take uh, the company into the future. Uh, this is a great story in the Wall Street Journal. They did a great job on it. The unit's plans included a multi-billion-dollar city where people could test out self-driving cars and live in smart homes. Also, a new operating system for Toyota cars that's been delays. Um, they hired a they hired a, a very uh, prominent uh, Google uh, car person. Um, I, I do think everyone did get a, get ahead of themselves where the consumer wasn't yet. At the same time, and I think you're right about sort of the Tesla envy that sort of Push. it's sort of it reminds you of streaming, right? Everybody rushed into streaming after Netflix, um, in some ways, and then there was only Netflix left to make money at this.
1: Yeah, it's um, so Ford said it's postponing 12 billion in planned spending, um, they've already abandoned their targets. Uh, the, the bottom line is, is, they all thought they would get the same sort of Tesla bump, and they haven't. What they did was the, the worst of both worlds, they don't get credit for forward-leaning investments in EVs, at the same time, their profits are going down because people still want to buy Escalates. And the most profitable part of the U.S. auto industry is trucks, you know, kind of the gas guzzlers, the internal combustion engines. And there's something also, you know, I don't know if it's like my, I don't know, fake masculinity or desire to be strong or caveman instincts, but the majority of people, including myself, still like the feel of an internal combustion engine. And
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think they would switch pretty quickly. I mean, you know, I think everyone liked landlines, I guess. And then they didn't like, they liked mobiles. I, I, I was driving the Ford 150. It's a great car. I have to say the Lightning, it's a very powerful car. It Pull, it was a it was a terrific car. it's just expensive, and I think people are nervous, right? and it's not that it's they did a beautiful job i have it's gorgeous and strong and powerful and expensive and and I think people are have that you know they have that worry about um being able to charge it, et cetera, et cetera and it, it's just the consumers haven't shifted over yet. So do you imagine there being like the same thing with streaming, which is these people are all in for this, but they're going to lose a lot of money and then sort of Tesla cleans up? Because I don't know if this will help Tesla necessarily, but maybe it will.
1: Well, won't. I mean, already 50% of U.S. adults is, uh, have said they don't see themselves as likely EV buyers. And what's what's the scariest thing about that number is that it's risen. And that is more people now see themselves as less likely to own an EV, and it, it, most of it is they blame a lack of EV infrastructure. That there is something weird about. So um, there is something weird about going on a trip and being feeling vulnerable. <laughs> you know that
0: you yeah. go to Disney. Yeah, like, there's not a gas station. There's always a gas station.
1: I remember I checked in and I went to you know Orlando and I checked in and, the, and I said, "Can you charge our car?" And they said, "Oh, the thing we have is broken, not working." You feel just you you feel. You feel vulnerable. Um, but and then you have GM, Ford, and GM and Ford have both shed uh one shed 19%, Ford's off 14% year to date. And this is an environment where their stocks look cheap and the SP is up. Now, granted, that's largely been driven by just a small number of stocks that are inspired by AI. So they're saying they could be a quarter by 20 of new sales by 2035, but at that point only 13% of vehicles on the road would be electric. I was really fascinated at this conference, talking to this oil and gas guy, and granted, he's talking to his own book, but he's like, if the goal is to grow the economy and the goal is to decarbon the world or get in the way of climate change, there are cheaper, more efficient ways to do it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he talked about what I thought was really fascinating, and I didn't know this. He said, the cheapest way to take carbon out of the air is reforestation. You know, it all comes to, what is it?
0: Although Bill Gates isn't for that, but go ahead. There's lots of arguments, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, but it just sort of fascinated me. Like, if the goal is just to get carbon out of the air, um, okay, one means is to spend money to, like, I've always, I've been, I'm really excited about the idea of sustainable aviation fuels that are just put less shit into the air. And and he kind of walked me through the math and said, you'd be much better off uh, planting trees. And I think the answer at the end of the day is we need to do- All of it. um, We need to do all of it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just really- really go after it. But anyways. Yeah, um, it's
0: interesting. I do think people would pick an EV if that green premium came down. Like they start to pick those things, right? They start to move in that direction. Because I don't, I, I mean, I think not everybody likes to go vroom, vroom. And, but it is a different sound. I, a lot, there's a lot in my, you know, neighborhood. There are a mix of electric cars and a hy- lot of hybrids, a lot of hybrids. People are, seem to like, feel safer in a hybrid. Um, but it, but the cars, the, the electric cars have that hmmm when they come down the street, right? They, when they you
1: can you, barely hear them.
0: I can hear them. Yeah. You know, I have that sound and I kind of like it. I find it rather soothing, um, rather than a vroom, vroom, vroom. And it's because there's a guy who comes every night in front of our house and parks and vroom, vroom, vrooms for some reason plays music. It's kind of this weird, we don't know what to do about it. And, and it's really irritating because he vrooms and he plays really bad music. And then the, then the other person has an EV and it goes "Mm," as it comes in. So it's I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Um, uh, one of the stories that actually got a lot of attention, to is self-driving cars. You know I love self-driving cars. I do not drive in cruises because I'm more worried about them. I thought the Waymos are doing a better job in San Francisco. But uh, there was a terrible accident in San Francisco where a driver car hit someone, was tossed into the road, and a, a GM cruise ran over the person and wouldn't get off because they didn't know what to do. The car didn't know what to do. Um, it was initially caused by a human, which is the whole thing is a mess. It's a real mess. But uh, GM subsidiary cruise uh, announced this week is proactively pausing driverless operations nationwide. It's been operating, I th- lots of places, including San Francisco, um, the California DMV suspended its license to operate calling the vehicles not safe for public after the incident. Um, Waymo did not, uh, again, I ride in Waymos and, uh, I, I do not ride in cruises cause I know a little bit about, you know, what they're doing at Waymo versus cruise. And, um, uh, I felt less safe in those, um, you know, this driverless thing is also still going to be problematic largely because of the interaction, uh, between uh cars and people like uh, uh, drivers uh, human drivers human pedestrians people getting used to these things again a very um problematic you know transition that's going to be happening i still do think eventually everyone's going to be in driverless cars uh and i'm a proponent of them but it's definitely a setback
1: the thing i don't get about it and i wonder if some of it is political or being sponsored the backlash is being sponsored by varying lobbying groups who have a Invested interest in the status quo, because it strikes me that we're holding algorithms and machines to a much higher standard than, than people, because there's something kind of scary about the idea of a machine running over someone, but there are, you know, there are a lot of people uh, yes. hit people and run over people. Yeah. And I'd lo- I just love to see the data because my gut, and we should validate this, but my, my hypothesis would be that these things are actually uh, less dangerous. Um, what I have heard about EVs AVs. is that it's like your 16-year-old paranoid, um, you know, very careful new driver, and that is they are so slow as to be painful and slow. They
0: are. I told you that. I think I told you that. It's They used to be like your grandmother driving, not a good driver and too slow, and now you're like your good aunt driver who's too slow. Um, I think what it is is the, is the intersection of, of – drivers who are human and drivers who are driverless is if it was all driverless, I think we'd be a lot safer with some incidents. Um, And there's always going to be incidents no matter how you slice it. But this one was a really, it was a human who hit someone and then the they fell into the street. Anyway, it just was terrible, is it too? Yeah,
1: no, it is terrible. It's like, I mean, the real tragedy for me is, you know, when I drive an electric car and I've been on a long trip, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like when I have diarrhea, I'm just hoping I make it home, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, just hoping I make it home. Sorry. Oh, God. You usually
0: do. I always, I have a vision of, of, like, all gas stations being turned into electric um, uh, charging stations. like. I was yeah. like, why can't we just turn a bunch of gas stations into it so that you ru- drive up? Th-
1: that's a correct point. I mean, my, I don't think Tesla, I don't think Tesla disrupted the auto industry. I think Tesla disrupted gas stations. The reason I loved my Tesla and I will, I'm waiting for the new Range Rover EV mm-hmm. is that I, I think the worst the worst retail in America is TSA, grocery stores, and gas stations. Gas stations definitely feel like this is where I will uh, somehow get cancer that that emerges 20 years later or I'm going to get shot here. Gas stations just is the worst retail in the world. And the the opportunity to avoid gas stations, I mean, if you look at, look at it this way, it, it, EVs are now, I think, like 52 grand and regular cars average like, I don't know, 48 or something, whatever it is. But The thing I love about an EV is that if you have to go to the gas station once every week and it takes you, say, a total of 15 minutes to pull in, do your thing, the credit card doesn't work, you go in, you're talking about 13 hours of time in a gas station per year. And I would say, what would someone need to pay you to wake up at 6 a.m., get to a gas station at 7 a.m. and drive around the block to the same gas station all day long and fill up? until 8 p.m. that night. People would pay a lot of money to avoid that. I think it's a gas station, uh, worst retail that has really driven EV sales. But.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. All right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back for Wins and Fails.
2: Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.f-i-v-e-r-r.com and use code VOX. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started.
0: Okay, Scott, let's hear some wins and fails.
1: Uh, my win is being in our nation's capital. Um, I'm always very inspired to be here. I feel very fortunate. I think the, you know, I, I've, I've said to you, you know, many times, and I think you appreciate this too, that we're talented people and we work hard, but we lived these extraordinary lives because of, you know, huge investments and vision that, uh, people have made before us. and you know, the smartest thing I ever did was being born in America. and i I love being here. I think it's it's inspiring to see the monuments and to see how many talented people are working their asses off to see, quite frankly, just how you know, badass America is, how wealthy we are, and how beautiful the buildings are here. I was, you know in New York, we make the money in d c they spend it, but I, I think they spend it really well. It's just nice to be here. I'm also very appreciative that you got me involved in this and you're going to take me on a tour of the White House. It's fun to know important, influential people. So my win is being in our great nation's capital. My loss is, and I'm I'm going to harp on about this, and I realize I have a tinfoil hat here, but I saw that boomers, 70% of boomers support Israel or say they support Israel. And among, I guess it's Gen Z, it's 20%. And that 50% gap can be explained at least partially by a few things. One, young people have a very healthy skepticism of anything that their parents believe, and that's part, anthropologically, of making it easier to leave the pack. And it's also part of innovation and experimentation and evolution that young people want to do things differently, and I get that. I think there's also and incorrect in my view, conflation of civil rights and some of the, the obstacles that non-whites have faced in the U.S., but I don't think young people really understand the historical context here. But more than that here I still don't think that explains the 50% gap. Um, I think that we frame our lives and our view of the world through the media we consume. And I still don't think we have come to grips and realized the impact of one frame that is dominating all media Amongst young people, and that's TikTok, and just as we have weaponized media and propaganda around the world to our advantage, I think the same thing is happening here. And i i I think we're going to spend. I think we're going to find out in the fullness of time that the CCP is doing what we have done in the Middle East, all over the world. When we were able to drop leaflets, (laughs) whatever it is, we are used to an American hegemony where we control media outlets and get to control the narrative, and uh, they would be stupid not to be doing this. This is what we would be doing. But I I wonder if the frame through which young people get their information, I also think people my age, and especially in Washington, just don't realize, just don't realize the scope, the penetration, and the dominance that a CCP-controlled media outlet has over an entire generation because we're not on it. And there the they're, the lack of diversity of media through which um, young people are getting their information because I gotta be honest, and I, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I'm not only disturbed by what I'm seeing on campuses, I'm, I'm actually really surprised and I'm thinking, where are they getting their information? And the other, thing, the other thing that's really interesting here that we're gonna have to think through is that when we firebomb Dresden, if they'd had live TikToks running of a, of a family I mean, it, this is just sort of changing everything. People forget that the Bush administration— Well, there was an
0: America First movement as back then. Actually, Rachel Maddow has a book called Prequel about this. But go ahead. Yeah,
1: but the difference, though, is that, for example, in the, the Iraq War, the Bush administration said, we're going to have a media blackout because we don't need to see people being killed because there's no elegant way to kill people. They, don't, they just don't float away. And when you go on TikTok—and and maybe this is what we need. Maybe people need to have the horrors of war thrown in their face on both sides— but when you see this like beautiful mother and father and this gorgeous child and you hear missiles in the background and their Gazans, it just brings war home in a way. We're not used to this. We're not used to war being live streamed like this. It's, we're used to being in charge and we're no longer in charge of the media that young people consume. And that might be a good thing. But I wonder if they're doing to us what we have done all through the 20th century, and that is try and frame the narrative to their advantage.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I would I would push people to a really very good piece in the Atlantic. Uh, I think I'm not going to pronounce this right. Simon Sebag Montefiore. And it's called The Decolonization Narrative is Dangerous and False. And the subhead is it does not accurately describe either the foundation of Israel or the tragedy of the Palestinians. And I think that's what's really hard. And what happens is these, these, these medias reduce things to these, mm-hmm. you know, and it does remind you of sort of, as it says i've always wondered about the leftist intellectuals who supported stalin and those aristocratic sympathizers and peace activists who excused hitler you know what i mean like you do see those kind of things and so i think it's 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 important to to really understand things with a little more depth um and also understand within israel there's there's also a, a split and especially around netanyahu i don't think you know he before this he did not have as you know what happened in this country after nine eleven, you know with george bush who was sort of on the bad side and then everybody rallies around him um if you recall maybe you don't recall um but i do think it's a much more complex thing and i would suggest you read that atlantic article everybody i think it's really quite um it, it is existential for both the palestinians and the israelis and hamas is a terrorist organization it's full stop well
1: to that point and I, it's so hard for me not to get boomerish here, but I see these protests on uh, campuses, including mine, NYU, and it's so striking because it's people who you would generally categorize as being very progressive and very very liberal. And I'm like, I, 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 I think you should try and find a representative of Hamas and, and discuss your preferred pronouns with them. I mean, it just seems so counter to everything they stand for 23 and a half hours a day. And yet this has evoked enormous empathy i'm having trouble squaring the circle here i really am because i imagine the israeli government taking for some reason having power taking over the white house taking over our military i think it's sort of business as usual in america i think they appreciate democracy uh, women's rights reproductive rights civil rights uh uh, the uh, you know prosperity capitalism and then i imagine what would happen to gay people women and and Christians or non-Muslims if Hamas took over the White House in the U.S. military. And I, 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 I see a fairly big distinction there. And I don't understand how these progressive forces on campus fail to see that. But I, yeah. I, I you know
0: and a lot yep. to learn here. Here's, let me just read this last thing for the Atlantic. So the war unfolds tragically. As I write this, the pounding of Gaza is killing Palestinian children every day, and that is unbearable. As Israel still grieves its losses and buries its children, we deplore the killing of Israeli c- civilians just as we deplore the killing of Palestinian civilians. We reject Hamas, evil and unfit to govern, but we not mistake Hamas for the Palestinian people whose losses we mm-hmm. mourn as we mourn the yep. death of all innocents. I thought that was – um I think that was very well said. Anyway, it's a very difficult issue. We know we're going to get flack. Bring it on, I guess. Um, I'm going to go to something totally different because we need to like sure. pull this out. Um, if you want to oh have God, are three, you going to talk about d- Taylor Swift? Don't no, I'm not. Taylor. I'm going to talk me. about another Thank fantastic God. woman, Brie Larson. Oh, okay. Um, uh, she is a, a series. She's executive produced and she stars in um, based on a novel by Bonnie Garmis called Lessons in Chemistry, and it's an adaptation of that. It's on Apple TV. I got to say, it's delightful in every single way. I've just started watching it. Um, and it's about a, a woman. Uh, let me read the description. Whose dream of being a this is from a Harper's Bar story. Whose dream of being a scientist is obstructed by the patriarchal society in which she lives. When Elizabeth finds herself pregnant, alone, and fired from a job in a lab, she accepts a job as a host on a TV cooking show. All while craving to return to her true love, science. It's. It's shockingly fantastic. I just think, and Brie Larson is just so terrific. I just, what a, I was so happy after watching it. I just don't know what else to say. I was just totally happy after watching it. I think you should. Um, and, uh, fail is this speaker, the more that comes out about, uh, speaking of people who love living in the 18th century, um, and said it was better then, apparently. There's, there, all this stuff is surfacing about the new speaker, Mike Johnson and his wife, uh, which is a pair. I think they're a pair is what they are their podcast, I've been listening to it, is disturbing. Um, They have an obsession with gays um, and the end of gays, essentially, gay marriages, gay everything. They think having sex between a man and a woman only in a straight marriage is everything else is sinful, linking uh, everybody else with bestiality and accept all kinds of, Things that we shouldn't be linked with. Um, I find more and more that comes out about what this guy has said. It's the, the more disturbing it is that he's second in line for the president. It's really um, very handmade tale. This pair. It reminds me of. And I, I, I tend not to like to demonize people, but boy, these videos are like. I, I, I just had a, a flashback to the nineteen eighties when I was coming out and just or seventies and 80s, I mean the eighties really and. Just a flashback of that kind of la- language that I haven't heard in a long, long time. And there they are. So. The,
1: the most senior Republican in our government right now is someone who said, I mean, a couple of things. One, that school shootings are a function of the fact that they're teaching evolution in schools. He believes that. And then last week when asked for his worldview, when people said, we barely know you, he said, pick up a Bible. Yeah. And in my view, that used to be disqualifying. If you look at the mullahs, if you, look at, if you look at governments that really have an ability to levy enormous cruelty on their populaces, it's usually driven by one thing, and that is religious fanaticism. Yeah. And we always, we always perceive that danger and said, okay, it's important. You have the right to worship whatever God you want, but when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, you need to recognize that, that many of us worship a different God or no God at all and that this religion first seeing framing the constitution or american exceptionalism through the context of one god's viewpoint it leads to very ugly places and we used to say that was disqualifying and even if people felt that way they kept into themselves and now we have a guy that's two heartbeats away from the presidency who's just openly saying it's about the bible <laughs> and and we never we never used to go there yep
0: yeah. Um, just so you're aware, I'm going to read this. New elected House Speaker Mike Johnson defended his extremist anti-LGBTQ views on Thursday, telling Fox News, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, adding, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview. Um, he's had a long campaign, not just against gay rights, this, it, it, abortion, everything. Um, biblical, he thinks biblical beliefs are inseparable from public affairs. I know a lot of people think this, but that's not our Constitution. So, Um, CNN uncovered editorials written by Johnson from 2003 to 2005, which he argued for the criminalization of gay sex, calling homosexuality inherently unnatural, dangerous lifestyle and said marriage equality poses a threat for our entire democratic system, warning that polygamists, polyamorous, pedophiles, and others would next in line to claim equal protection. An old trope, but boy, that's 2003 is not that far away. Um, anyway, it's disturbing. I have to say, um, he's not moderate. He's just smiley. He's just a smiley Christian nationalist. I'm sorry. That's what he is. That's what's going on here. Um, anyway, that's my fail. Um, oh, wait, we ended up on not a good month. Let's go back to Brie Larson and and dressing up like Deadpool. Oh, by the way, Let's a go fantastic
1: God. a fantastic movie of Brie Larson. Yeah. Did you ever see Rome? Yes.
0: Oh, I can't watch that. It's so upsetting. I can't. Oh, that's not a good one. She's amazing. That's where she got all her notice. That's where it's, she got it. It
1: is disturbing. can outstanding. I can't, oh, now you
0: went bad places. Let's go yeah. to let's go to the Marvels. The Marvels is coming out. We did see that at the Taylor Swift like a preview. There's so many good previews of movies coming, um, including the new Hunger Games, which looks really good. Uh, that's also negative. All right, let's go back to Brie Larson. Anyway, um, uh, let's get to the White House, Scott. We got things to do. Let's go be influencers. Let's go to the White. Let's, let's go talk about AI. That's why we're invited. We're influencers, and we're so excited. White House, are you? ready for us? Anyway, uh, we want to hear from you. Our listeners, send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. Scott, that is the show. Uh, we'll be back on Friday for more with a report from the White House and maybe some more chitty chat with some White House people. Maybe who knows? Who knows what friends will make? Maybe we'll be hanging in the oval for a while. I don't know. Um, Read us out and let's hustle over there.
1: Today's show was produced by Lara Neiman, Zoe Marcus, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Engertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows, Mille Silverio, and Gaddy McBang. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. To Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Who is at the center of the most important, greatest experiment ever? That's right, that's right, the jungle cat and the dog in our nation's capital.